All right. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and we'll be in verses 29 through 34. So grab your Bibles, open them up. John chapter 1, 29 through 34. <clears throat> the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen And I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Lord, there's longing in our hearts to know you better, understand you more, and It compels us, it drives us to this place where we worship with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We we understand things like what Paul said when he said that he would give everything up for the sake of the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing you, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior knowing the power of your resurrection. The reason why, Lord, we have that compulsion and that desire within us is because you have created us for that. And Lord, when we don't have you as the great object of our worship and the great desire of our heart, that overriding affection, Lord, then we will inevitably find something else to fill that void and fill that spot in our hearts that belongs to you. And Lord, when we find somewhere else to look to, it will always be idolatry. And it will never satisfy and never fulfill. So Lord, I pray that as we look at you, specifically you, Jesus, tonight, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with you and all that you are and that you would communicate these truths to us, that you would love us, that you would show us that you are the great satisfier of our souls. Lord, we desire you and you above all else. And if that is not in our hearts right now, Lord, then I pray that you would bring brokenness and you would bring repentance. That we would put the sin of self-centeredness and self-congratulation behind us and that we would 
find our peace and our rest and our hope and our life and our very being in you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your great salvation with which you have redeemed our souls. And as we look to you tonight, bless us with your presence by your spirit. In your name, amen. It's interesting. Um, We come to church. A church is the people, of course. It's not just the building, although it has been, over the years, euphemized as this is the church, right? We gather together as the church, and we gather together because we believe that we are members of the church. That really it isn't the wood and the stucco and the glass, but really it is the people that we are stones being built on one another, right? It's the biblical illustration that Paul gives in Corinthians about the structure and nature of the church. And one would think that if that's who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it would behoove us to regularly look to our foundations in order to find a place of strength and comfort, to find a place of stability, to find the reason for why we are what we are, right? The foundations we, of course, speak of are found in this book, the Sacred Scripture, the Holy Bible that we have before us. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a church to fill the pulpit or guest preach, and I have announced Would you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 or Luke chapter whatever or this chapter this and I am met with blank stares looking back at me as if to say, you assumed we brought our Bibles? The nerve of you. I do assume that and I start right there because the text we're in assumes an understanding of the word of God that you already have. If you come to a text like this and you expect that you're going to be able to just plop open John chapter 1, never having studied or thought through your Old Testament, and you're going to glean everything that you're going to get from it, you are ignorant at worst and sorely just mistaken at best. Because we need the whole counsel of God. All scripture is Christian scripture. Genesis, Exodus, and that dreaded book Leviticus is every much Christian as is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so as we come to this particular text where John the Baptist speaks to the nation of Israel and he speaks to them from a context where he elucidates, where he explains, where he expounds who Jesus actually is, He speaks about Jesus being the fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament, being so much a fulfillment of all of these old covenant truths. In fact, in many ways, a revelation of what was hidden under these Old Testament truths. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, it's not in a vacuum. John has known Jesus basically from before his birth, right? Remember, you know the story, right? Where Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and John is in Jesus's, Jesus's, John is in Elizabeth's womb, and Jesus is in Mary's, and as Mary begins to speak, John leaps within 
Elizabeth's womb because he, interestingly enough, of all people is the only one that has been born filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of this filling with the Spirit, was able to somehow cognitively recognize this was the birth mother of his own Messiah. We see Jesus coming and there's much history, not just family history, but if you'll remember, this is taking place on the heels of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus has just spent 40 days out in the wilderness, not having eaten anything or apparently drinking anything. And in this state of physical weakness, Satan comes and tempts him those three times, once with food, once with power, and once with the ability to basically call upon God to do his will rather than him to do God's will or the Father's will. And in all three of those temptations, he comes away triumphant, victorious. He is our great high priest who is in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. And we could even say in many ways further than we have been ever tempted, right? Heck, I've never even fasted for 40 days, much less had Satan show up and try to cook me a brisket or something (laughs) and offer it to me or tell me I could do some miracle. But Jesus, even in the face of that kind of temptation, stands firm and stands strong. And then he comes back and begins his public ministry. Now, this is where we pick up the story. Jesus returning from his temptation. He encounters John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, because he is who we've already studied he is, the one to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight the paths for the way of righteousness to come to the nation of Israel, he is prepared to reveal who Jesus is. John the Baptist is in many ways what we might call, if we're looking back at some kind of medieval era, the king's herald. And I don't mean herald, H-O-R-L-D, or however you spell dude's name. But Harold is in one who proclaims something, right? And you've seen those old movies. We've never seen one in actuality. So movies are kind of what we have to rely on. Who goes into the town square and rolls open some scroll and says, yada, yada, yada. King says something or another. Hoot and nanny, dotty, dotty. But now everybody's got to obey, right? Something along those lines. Pay the taxes. Go in the army. Give me wheat. I don't know. Whatever it is that the herald proclaims. And of course, you know that we get the phrase, don't kill the messenger from that period of history, right? Because typically, herald, when he spoke words, wasn't very positive. At least not for the public. Certainly was for kingy, right? But not for the people who were hearing the message. And so course euphemistically don't kill the messenger well john the baptist is jesus's herald he is coming on behalf of king jesus to prepare the way of the lord and interestingly enough for him they did actually kill the messenger we'll we'll get to that later on in the book of john but here right now he is heralding the coming of christ now last week we just begun this passage And we were only able to look at 
three of my seven points. I'm sure you're shocked I wasn't able to get through all seven points in one sermon. But I don't know if we'll even get through all seven of them tonight. Maybe we will. We've already looked at three. Let me remind you of the first three we looked at. Number one, these seven points are John's declaration of who Christ is. And by extension, a little bit of who he is, who John the Baptist is. Remember, that was the big question two weeks ago. The Pharisees came to ask John, who are you? We have to give an account to our leaders. Are you the Christ? Nope. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Well, who are you? He's the one who comes and makes straight and prepares the pathway of the Lord. So there are seven things in this text that we want to look at. And remember, I mentioned these, we could spend the next two months easily just in this text looking at these seven points. But number one we looked at last week was Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we took most of the time last week, frankly, talking about this whole concept of Lamb of God. We went back into the Old Testament and we saw where this concept came from. Then we saw why it mattered so much to the nation of Israel in particular, but then also from the nation of Israel to the world at large. because it says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember, that would have been shocking to those who were listening to John the Baptist speaking. In their mind, the Lamb of God covers the sin of Israel, right? Because that was the whole point of the Lamb of God. Cover the blood on the doorposts and the lintels, that death angel passes over, and they don't die, but the rest of the world does die, right? So for Jesus... To be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just Israel, was radical. And radical is an understatement. Unheard of. Unthinkable. Difficult for the minds of the people listening to John to comprehend and wrap around. But we looked at how there was this truth on not only in the Old Testament, looking forward, but now in the New Testament, specifically Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, looking backward. And we saw how this is specifically referring to the extent of the atonement, meaning all peoples of the world, not the objects of the atonement, not specifically individuals, but the whole world will now be recipients in the fact that the elect will come from Jews and Gentiles alike, Slaves, free, men, women, anywhere in the globe, this is going to be possible because the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. The second thing we looked at is in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. And we saw that in especially the cultural, even biblical times that John lived in, John, being the older person, the one who was born before Jesus, would have ranked higher than Jesus in every way. But John says, no, Jesus actually ranks higher than me. And he tells us why, which is our third point. Because he was before me. You see, even though John was physically born in time-wise history before Jesus... Jesus has always existed. Jesus has eternally existed. Remember there in John chapter 17, we saw that high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. And he says in verse 5 specifically, 
God, I pray, or Father, I pray, now that as I'm accomplishing this work of redemption, that I would receive the glory again, that glory that I had with you before the world began. And he prays to the Father and says, Father, grant, re-grant me that glory that I had previously before the world even began. Meaning Jesus has eternally been in existence. Which is how he could say, John could say, Jesus ranked higher than him. So that's the three we looked at last week. Let's look at, Lord willing, the last four points here in this text. Verse 31, John says, Now I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. The fourth point is that Jesus was revealed by John. Jesus doesn't come revealing himself, notice. Has that ever struck you before? Jesus just doesn't stand up on the the day of atonement there on the temple one day and says, I'm the Messiah, guys. He doesn't go to the Mount of Judah or pardon me, the, the Mount Zion there in Judah and proclaim himself to be king and put a crown on his head there on David's throne. He doesn't do that. He is revealed by another. This is John's duty. It is his obligation to reveal who Jesus is. Now, he says here in verse 31, this is the purpose I came baptizing with water. But it's the I came baptizing that's important. Because the Jews, you might not know this, or maybe you do, the Jews had a concept of baptism. Did you know that? Well, let's say, you know, you're, you know, Ryan, Ryan, let's say you're Ryan the Egyptian, okay? Ryan the Egyptian, he comes up to Israel and he's like, ooh, goody, I love this stuff here, this Judaism. How do I become one of you guys? And they say, well, there's all kinds of rituals you have to go through. A couple of them are painful. A couple of them aren't. Let's do this. So you go through this whole process and you get to this one particular point and you are baptized as a Gentile and you come out of the waters. It is a similar symbol that we have. You are dying to your old heritage and you are now becoming somebody new. You are becoming Jewish. So along with the several other cultural things or or ceremonial acts that you would perform, there was this understanding of baptism. It wasn't always a full dunk. Oftentimes it was just an anointing of the head, but it was still called a baptism. So think about it. That's the cultural mindset of the Jews in the day of John. And yet he shows up and he starts taking Jews and baptizing them in the water for the repentance of their sins. The audacity, the nerve. Who does this guy, the goal of John to be taking Jews and baptizing them, right? It would be similar to somebody coming along and saying, well, you've been baptized as Christians, that's great. Now you need to get baptized into gobbledygook. Or whatever, you know what I mean? We would all be like, yeah, no. (laughs) But that's what they were thinking too. 
Now, baptism doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. It, it was tradition that arose during that intertestamental period, those 400 silent years between Malachi and the Gospels. But it was something that was so traditional that everybody understood. I mean, think about it. 400 years is a long time for a tradition to get going, right? I mean, we're a nation, and every 4th of July, we got a tradition and I guarantee you, if I'm in South Africa or wherever I'm at on the 4th of July, I'm going to look for a sparkler or something. I'm going to look for a hamburger or a brat to eat, right? Because I'm going to celebrate. It's a tradition that I have. Well, they had this. But John says, this is the purpose. Here is my big P, my big picture purpose. I came with the purpose of baptizing with water so that Jesus would be revealed. You see, his point of baptism was to create this cultural consciousness, this whole national awareness that repentance is needed. That you might think you're all okay because you're Jewish, but you're not. You need to repent. And Jesus' very first message that we see in both Matthew chapter 4 and in the Gospel of Mark is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' words. His very first public message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. You see, he was trying to collectively raise awareness to the fact that you are not right with God. You've got a temple. You've got sacrifices. You've got washings. You've got the right food to eat. But you are full of dead bones. You are whitewashed tombs. You are not right with God simply because you have been born in the right place to the right parents at the right time. No, Jesus needed to be revealed. And notice what he says to Israel. Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. What is John doing? Revealing to Israel their need for repentance. Does the rest of the world need to repent? Of course. But Israel, and you know what? We understand this, don't we? The greater you understand and know scripture, the more accountable you actually are. And so, the greater your need for repentance is. Believe me, beloved, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I know that. It doesn't do anything for me spiritually to have been walking with the Lord since 1993. Time-wise, it doesn't matter. It doesn't do me any good to have been a pastor of this church for 13 plus years. It doesn't matter. I can go to hell and have been supposedly a professing Christian and have been pastoring a church for 13 years. You see, what matters is, have I been born again? Am I continually repenting? The more I grow in my knowledge and understanding of the Lord, I better be a more repentant individual. I need to repent more quickly. Be quick to be the one who acknowledges my sin. Believe me, my conscience is so seared now that I repent of things that I would have thought were so petty and ridiculous, maybe even 10 years ago. 
But now it's like, I just, I, my heart is broken over these things. And things I used to do 20 years ago, when I still was a Christian, I like can't even believe, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed by that. You know, people say, oh, I'm so embarrassed about the things I did when I was 15, right? You said the one wrong thing in the one room and everyone laughed at you or whatever it was. Heck, for me, it's when I was a Christian, like, I can't believe I did that. Thank God for his grace, amen? But you see, this is what John was trying to raise in the consciousness, in the collective understanding of Israel. You have been a covenant people for this long. You should be the most sensitive and most repentant. And you're not. You see what John's doing? He's grabbing them and he's shaking them and he's going, why aren't you rejoicing that Jesus is about to be here? Instead, you're looking at me with suspicion and thinking, how can we get rid of this guy? You see? So John's purpose to come baptizing with water was that Jesus might be revealed to the nation because they needed to repent collectively. And we need to take that to heart too, right? That's a good application for us as well. That the longer we walk with the Lord, we want to be more sensitive and more sensitive and more sensitive to our sin. We want that spirit to lead and to guide our hearts and our lives through repentance. We don't want to avoid it. We don't want to run away from it. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts to acknowledge our sin, but it's right and it's good. Oh, and it's worth it. It's worth it. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Point number one was Jesus is the Lamb of God. Point number two, he ranks higher than John. Point number three, that Jesus has eternally existed. Point number four was that Jesus was revealed by John. And point number five is there is a glorious and blessed Trinity. John reveals the Trinity. I can't overstate that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Throughout the history of that nation of Israel, they had been pummeled in righteous judgment, appropriate punishment by God for their entire history, for idolatry, worshiping false gods, worshiping other gods. Over and over and over and over again, they would worship gods and a judge would come and then they or the enemy would come, then a God would raise up a judge and then this and that. Then the prophets came and they were prosecuting the nation's sin against them. And then they were finally taken into captivity. Idolatry, the worship of other gods, was this albatross around the neck of the nation of Israel for most of the Old Testament. 
And now, John the Baptist is coming and saying that not only is there a Father, and not only is there Holy Spirit, but there's Jesus Christ as well. The Trinity is something that we will not exhaust the entire time we have been given on this planet to live and to think and to move and to have our being. You can spend the rest of it thinking about this one issue and you will never exhaust it. The fact that there is one being that is God that is yet in fact three persons that act and move and function. How can we conceive of a being like that? We don't have anything like that in experience, right? I love the all Patrick memes, right? They're hilarious. And if you don't know what those are, St. Patrick's Day's coming, you're welcome. Start looking for them. The whole point of them is that Patrick supposedly gave the Irish a four-leaf clover and said, here's the Trinity. It's like a this, and, you know, it's got the three leaves, but it's one. Oh, that's modalism, Patrick. You know, and it's, it's all these heresies. Well, it's like water because it's steam, and it's the ice, and it's the liquid, and that's still a heresy as well, you know. And, and so all of these illustrations that people try to make, well, it's like light because you Flick the little lighter and there's the actual physical flame. But then there's the light, but then there's the heat. And it's all, oh, you can't separate them. None of those do God justice. Now, if you're talking to a little four-year-old, if I'm talking to Charlotte, I might use something like that just to kind of sort of try to get her to wrap her mind around it. But beloved, that's what God did when he condescended to us to reveal to us what the Trinity is. He got down like us little kids and said, here's kind of what I'm like. I kind of like a lighter. See? And we're like, oh, and we think about it and think about it and we can never figure it out. And that's right. God is so big and so vast. We shouldn't be able to understand him. We shouldn't be able to comprehend him. There shouldn't be no illustration that works and applies when we talk about the nature and existence of God. Let me give you one example. You might have heard me say something similar in the past. That's fine. You're going to love it. The concept of love. God is what? Come on. God is what? Love. You all know that. 1 John chapter 4. You're probably reading it this week. God is love. Everyone loves to quote it. Everyone loves to think about it. But the truth of the matter is, is if God was Unitarian, it wouldn't work. Because he had eternally existed in eternal unity, in a singularity, there is no object for him to love, and there is no reception of any love in return. So therefore, in all of eternity, God could not be called love. And even once he had created, let's suppose that that was the first time that he had ever been receiving of love, he still could not be called love in the sense that he is love because it had not always been something that had eternally been part of him. 
Therefore, just simply by the fact that God is love demands the need for a trinity. And the reason it's not a dichotomy is because you can love and you can receive, but that love and reception is always reciprocal, right? It's always back and forth. Whereas if there's three members and objects of that love, then it's always going back and forth. And I'm never loving because I'm directly being loved by another. And therefore it's perfect and it's pure. We can never call into question the motives of God, even within the bounds of the eternal trinity. Because that love is always a pure and perfect and righteous and holy and all of the other superlatives we would want to use kind of love. John came to reveal the trinity. This didn't exist before in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, I don't mean exist in the terms of that the Trinity didn't exist. I mean the concept of God being Trinitarian. There were glimmers and flashes. I had Joel read for Call to Worship Psalm 2. For us, looking back, it's pretty clear Psalm 2 is messianic and speaking about the Son of God. As is Psalm 110, as is so many other passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53... Right? Great example of that. We looked at last week, Genesis 22. We saw that being a messianic illusion or looking forward of something. But it's really in the New Testament where we see this fully fleshed out. Look with me at Matthew, Matthew 28. You probably all know this passage. It's the Great Commission. So... I'm not surprised if you know it already, but I'd like you to turn there and just look at it with me. Matthew 28. Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, them as the disciples, the 11 who were left there after the resurrection. Of course, you know, Judas had gone already and hung himself here at this particular point. But he says to them, to the 11, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay? There's the great commission. The great commission means the going and sending. Here's what God is commissioning us as the church to do through the disciples. And we have all authority in all the universe given to us to accomplish this task because Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go so we go and perform what it is Jesus tells us to do with all authority that there could possibly ever be and what are we to do we're to make disciples of all nations okay how do we make disciples of all nations Right? If we're given this great commission by Jesus Christ himself based upon all of the authority that possibly exists because he is the second member of the Trinity, the Godhead, then what are we supposed to do in making disciples? Number one, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and Teach them, teach the disciples to observe everything I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So, second thing first, we're to teach everything that Jesus commanded us to do, right? If I'm going to make disciples, my duty, my obligation is to teach everything that Jesus taught. If I'm making you his disciples, I'm going to teach you everything he said. Not my own ideas, not my own intuitions. I'm not trying to attract you to me. I'm trying to point you to Christ, right? But the first thing then is he tells us that we are to baptize no longer in any other way, in any other form, except the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now this would be absolutely, utterly blasphemous if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were not co-equal, co-eternal, all co-members of the Godhead. When we baptize, we are baptizing people not, pardon me, into Judaism. We are baptizing people into the faith of the triune God that's been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, first revealed by John the Baptist. Now, I don't know what was going on in John the Baptist's mind when he was trying to reconcile all these truths into his head. The Father came and appeared to him and told him the Spirit's going to descend on Jesus like a dove, and that person is the Messiah. I mean, I guess at that point you just go, okay, Lord, (laughs) and you go with it. Because there's no revelation before this that would lead John to this conclusion. This clearly isn't something dude came up with on his own in the wilderness. It's not some bad honey that he ate, right? No, the father revealed this truth to him. And so he, when he went out, was able for the first time to reveal this Trinitarian nature of God. And it absolutely was radical. In the Gospel of Luke, This is the event that took place. The Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people had been baptized and Jesus had been baptized and he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here, you see, as John has baptized Jesus, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. This isn't Jesus getting the Christ upon himself, as some Eastern kind of religions or <clears throat> some of the more mystic types of forms of Christianity might have us believe. This is the giving of the fatherly approval to the mission of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the approval of the ministry of Christ, given by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What you have in the work of Jesus Christ, we're often very Jesus-centric as the church. Right? I don't, don't misunderstand me. We're clearly forced to do that in Scripture, and rightly so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what we find in the ministry of Jesus regularly is him pointing us back to the Father and also him claiming that what he does 
has been empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. So that Jesus, even in his own ministry, doesn't take all authority upon himself, even though rightly he could as the Son of God, as God himself in human flesh. He doesn't do that. But instead, he refers to the Spirit enabling, empowering, motivating him, all these kind of words. You wonder, how can the Spirit do that when he is God in the flesh and all of those things, believe me, we'll explore as we go through the Gospel of John, but we're never going to figure them out. Ha! <laughs> I'll do the best I can with all the words I got, but we're still going to go away just going, wow, God is awesome, which is what we should do, right? Which is kind of where we're at right now, the Trinity. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He upon you whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now we should stop there. I got through one point. <laughs> we'll come back and we'll pick up the last two points, Lord willing, next week here as we look more at who this Jesus is that John has revealed to us. Lord, what good news that you give to us. What good hope. You, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, you have eternally existed and yet have come down and been revealed to us by your cousin there, John the Baptist. And yet, Lord, when we look at you, we realize you are the greatest and glorious of all beings, the great second person of the Trinity, Lord. And our minds and our hearts just soar with these thoughts, and they rightly should. I pray, Lord, that as we think about all that you are, Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed and consumed with your goodness, the radical, radical nature of you, and how that you, all that you are, see, have seen fit not to just leave us as specks of dust on a speck of dust spinning in a, a dusty universe, Lord, but for some reason that glorifies you for all eternity, Lord, you have seen fit to see us as objects of your affection and your grace. It's, it's remarkable. God, I praise you for all of the love and the majesty that you've shown to us. And we worship you in your majesty, in your glory, and ascribe to you all the honor that's due your name. And as we close in prayer right now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with this very same spirit that came upon you and may our hearts and our minds be knit to the fact that you are our great God and great Savior. You are Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.